Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive recipe tool for professional chefs and cooks. Designers use Figma, photographers use Photoshop. Now, finally, chefs have the right tool for recipe development, management, training, and evolution with Mies. Like Mise en Place, the term that inspired its name, Mies helps chefs and cooks be organized, ready, and efficient, save time and money, eliminate mistakes and redundancies, and guarantee consistency, whether in one restaurant or across a multi-unit company. Visit GetMees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up for a free trial membership. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I grew up eating really great food. My mother and my grandmother were really extraordinary cooks. Plus, I traveled, which is, I think, the singular most important transformative thing in anyone's life. Being the kid of immigrants, like I traveled back and forth between two cultures and then stopped and saw cousins in other places in Latin America. Like, that's like a gift. And um, speaking another language is also another way into understanding other cultures. That is the voice of prolific New York City chef and restaurateur Alex Raj. We were home for a year. We all had these difficult experiences and being able to be in a kitchen doing what you love and coming to the realization that the thing you love to do the most could actually be your job is kind of this epiphany moment for people. And that is Jody Liano, founder and owner of San Francisco Cooking School. They are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope all of you are doing well. Our feature guest this week is Chef Alex Raj. Alex is the chef and restaurateur behind a quartet of restaurants in New York City, all of which I adore. Two of them are in Manhattan. Two of them are in Brooklyn. One is Lavara. Another is St. Julivert's Fishery. Another is Tiquito. And the fourth one is El Quinto Pino. Those are all great restaurants. They're all very different. They all kind of exist in the Spanish lane. Alex and I have a conversation about her story and also about where her ideas for restaurants come from. And I think you'll find it fascinating. Coming up a little bit before that, in our lineup news and commentary segment, we have Jody Liano, a friend of the pod and founder and owner of San Francisco 
Cooking School, who joins us to discuss culinary students in the late COVID era. It's a fascinating conversation with a lot of observations that were not obvious to me, and I think you'll find that highly informative. Before I get to all that, as I have been doing recently, I do want to share a few dining experiences I've enjoyed. I have been doing this every week, both to kind of hip you all to places that I like, although the ones I'm getting to this week are not necessarily brand new restaurants, but also just to encourage people to get out there and support restaurants and treat yourselves to a good time in the process. So last week, I went to a restaurant that I had not been to in years. I don't think I'd been there for dinner probably in, gosh, maybe 15, 20 years, but I went to Balthazar, classic restaurant in the Soho neighborhood in New York City. It's having a bit of a moment lately. For whatever reason, people have been flocking there as, as uh, uh, the restrictions begin to lift. I had dinner indoors there. I had a very conventional dinner. I had an ice cold vodka martini. I had a delicious, very simple salad. And then of course I had a steak frite and a glass of Cote de Rhone. Nothing wrong with any of that. It was great. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Friday night, I went to a friend's restaurant. My, my buddy, Michael LaMonaco, who I did a cookbook with years ago called Nightly Specials. His restaurant, Porterhouse, which most people I think probably consider one of the best steakhouses in New York City at this point, had mostly been closed over the last year. They are in the Time Warner Center. Uh, outdoor dining was not a viable option for them. They're on the fourth floor of, you know, what's essentially a, a ritzy shopping center or and uh, they finally reopened. They had a grand reopening Friday night. Uh, Caitlin, my wife and I, went and uh, they were doing gangbusters business. The food was just phenomenal. Uh, and the service was great. I mean, they were all working very hard. It was kind of like being at an opening. You could tell that they had just reopened. There was a lot of energy in the room. There was a little nervous energy, but the staff, I mean, they really pulled it off. It was very impressive effort and uh, we had a great great dinner and the food of course was just tremendous then i did something i hadn't done in a very long time i got on a train and i took a trip last week and i went to boston the people who run the secret supper series of dinners invited me and i do want to be transparent about this to be their guest uh, they invited me and some friends to come as their guests to check out what they do uh, we met at a pier in boston uh, a, a ferry transported us to Thompson Island, which was quite scenic. We had a dinner right there on the beach. I, I'd guesstimate there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 people. Uh, uh, there was someone playing guitar, uh, started off with canapes, past canapes and champagne, and then dinner was served at the tables. Uh, it was a four-course dinner. Uh, we took the ferry back at sunset. That was quite the experience. It was a very welcome experience after you know the lockdown to to actually go to essentially an event was just great and then since i was in boston i went to my my relatively new pal douglas williams douglas you may remember was on this show i think he was the first or second long form interview that we aired in 2020 after we stopped doing our nightly special reports i had recorded an interview with douglas just before the pandemic and he and i've been in touch on and off uh, he has a restaurant called Mida, which is an Italian restaurant in Boston. Uh, I was only able to go for brunch. I don't mean that as a slight, but I, you know, I didn't get to see, you know, his full repertoire on display. Uh, we mostly, my friends and I, had some pastas. 
Um, they were all just tremendous. There was a short rib ravioli and there was a carbonara and he sent us this tremendous gnocchi, cacio pepe that he does. Uh, my, my friend Sarah had these incredible pancakes. Um, it was just, it was awesome. It was awesome. I also had a great margarita. That's not really an Italian drink, but you know, it's warm weather now and that's where my mind goes. So that's what I had. So those were some highlights of my eating and drinking adventures last week. And again, I hope you all are getting out there in whatever way you feel safe doing it and supporting restaurants at this time. I also want to share, and I'm incredibly excited about this, that a new sponsor is joining the Andrew Talks to Chefs family this week. Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, or BMRS, has been a leading hospitality recruitment and placement firm for more than 17 years. They have joined us as a sponsor, and each week, We'll be featuring a sampling of some positions BMRS is looking to fill following our lineup segment this week. Brad himself will join us to do just that. Founded by industry veteran Brad Metzger, whose first kitchen job was under Wolfgang Puck at the original Spago and based in Southern California, BMRS Hospitality Recruitment matches top level hospitality professionals with some of the best jobs in the industry, both across the United States and internationally. If you are looking for the next step in your career from conventional positions like executive chef, pastry chef, and sous chef to dining room positions like general manager, director of operations, or manager to outside the box directions like R&D and private chefing, BMRS should be the first stop on your quest. There is never a cost to you, the candidate, and BMRS adheres to the strictest confidentiality. So reach out and begin a conversation with them today, whether to pursue a specific current listing or just to be sure you're on their radar so they can reach out to you when your dream position crosses their desk. As Brad himself likes to say, it never hurts to see what else is out there. BMRS has created a special email address for our listeners. You can send a resume to ATC at restaurant-solutions.com or call or text Brad himself. I was a bit stunned by this, as you will hear in my conversation with him in the mid-show. But Brad is sharing his cell phone number as a special perk for our listeners. That number is 310-245-5108. Be sure to tell him that Andrew suggested you call. Learn more at restaurant-solutions.com and keep an eye out for some marquee listings on BMRS's Instagram feed. The handle for that is at BMRS Food Jobs. That's jobs, plural. BMRS Food Jobs. So in the lineup, our weekly news and commentary segment this week, we have Jody Liano, a friend of the pod and the founder and owner of San Francisco Cooking School. Simply put, I wanted to check in with a culinary educator to see who is matriculating in cooking school these days, why, and what their outlook is. And Jody, unsurprisingly, had all the answers. Before sharing my conversation with Jody, Let me please remind you that the lineup is sponsored by Mies, the revolutionary recipe sharing, training, scaling, and costing tool for professional chefs and cooks. Just as we help you make sense of industry news, 
Mies helps you organize your recipes. Learn more and sign up at getmees.com slash Andrew. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com slash Andrew. And I also need to add that if you've been listening to the show the last few weeks, you know we recently held a giveaway promotion with Mies. Those who signed up for the ongoing free trial that is available over the last few weeks and indicated Andrew Talks to Chefs as how they heard about Mies were automatically entered into a drawing to win two free signed hardcover copies of my book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. We just did the drawing a little earlier today, and the winner is, I need a drum roll. This is my own generated, self-generated drum roll. The winner is Stephanie Francis. And Stephanie, if you are listening, I sent you an email a little earlier this afternoon. We're dropping this show on Thursday Uh, May 20th, uh, when you get that email, write me back. Let me know how you want those books signed and where I can send them, and I will get them off to you. I want to thank, on behalf of myself and Mies, everyone who signed up for that free trial. Again, that is always available. There will be more promotions to come in the future, but there's no need to wait. I would encourage you to check out Mies. I do believe you will thank us for suggesting it. And with all that as prologue, here is my conversation with the founder and owner of San Francisco Cooking School, Jody Liano. I wanted to talk to somebody associated with a cooking school, and of course, you're the first person who always comes to mind when I think about cooking schools. Before we get into the sort of questions I had on my mind, can you just as as broadly or as specifically as you would like to, with the school operating again, what is it like there right now? What are the pandemic protocol procedures that are still in place? Just what's what's life like right now at San Francisco Cooking School? We reopened in January for our professional programs, which is the majority of what we do, the culinary and the pastry program. We returned fully masked. There were daily health checks. There were temperature checks, um, a lot of hand sanitizer, a lot of hand washing. But one interesting thing that naturally happens at culinary school is that sanitation is a huge part of what you are learning and practicing every single day. So naturally built into the curriculum was already this very high level of keeping things safe and keeping things clean. We have a really generously sized space and fairly intimate classes. So we could keep workstations safely distanced from each other. And we worked out ways for people to continue to be on their feet, cooking all day, tasting food, which is a giant part of our program and the experience here. So in the beginning, that really meant, you know, taking something maybe out of a pan, putting it in a ramekin, taking a tasting spoon away from everybody else, tasting it, coming back, correcting it and doing that again until that became a very natural habit. Everyone is now vaccinated. We are still fully masked, adhering to the protocols in San Francisco and California. Um, But people are a little more comfortable cooking as they are in restaurants right now, which is in a little bit of a tighter space. And us really focusing on the idea that we need to make sure that these students are learning how to cook in a post-COVID environment. So they, they still have masks on. Kitchens may still be places that continue to mask their staff over time. So we want them to be used to that. But also really just making sure that all those sanitation practices are at the fore of everything people do every single day. And I think, 
one part of coming back post COVID was to just really make all of that obvious again. I think for those of us who have been in the business for a long time, they become very second nature. But to make sure that for new cooks going into this business, that they really understand not only what to do, but why you do it. And I think COVID has really put that into perspective for people. The whole spine of that answer, I think, is so interesting because it does, it seems like an eternity ago, but I do remember in the early days of the pandemic, you know, when restaurants were mainly just doing takeaway, right, and curbside pickup, you know, a lot of chefs were on social media insistently saying, we have always keep our, you know, our workspaces, the place where your food is cooked, customers, we always keep these spaces immaculate. You know, that is that is part of the basic training of a professional cook who takes their work seriously. I hadn't heard anyone make that point in a while, but it was interesting to me that that was such a reflexive way for you to begin your answer. Because, you know, I do think, I mean, I, I went to a, you know, an abbreviated cooking program, the Law Technique program, back when there was a French Culinary Institute. And that was, I, it's one of the first things I remember having drilled into me was constant cleaning. Yeah. I mean, it, it's certainly not the most fun part of going to culinary school, but it's so necessary. And when we returned to the building with students in January and we really combed through all the Department of Health protocols, there were so many boxes that we had we were checking before COVID that it made it a very natural return to the classroom without feeling like we were having to compromise what students were doing every day. I don't know how specific you're going to be about what I'm about to ask you. You may you may not have an answer. You may have just the like um, almost like an instinctual answer, or you may have a very specific answer. I have no idea, but this is like the, the risk I take by not doing pre-interviews. But, um, you know, I'm wondering, this has been such a powerful time. We're, I was going to say we've been through, we're still in it, uh, certainly to some extent. Uh, and and maybe for some time yet in terms of, you know, protocols and things lingering on into the, certainly into the near future, maybe into the, the distant future. Uh, but, you know, it's been a very uh, emotionally powerful time for people. It's been a very reflective time for people. Do you perceive among the current students there a change in maybe what they're looking for uh, in, in terms of after they finish cooking school, in terms of what kind of careers they might have their heart set on or just kind of where, you know, what their own personal North stars are with regard to what they're learning to do? It's a good question. I think that COVID has created a real appreciation for being in the kitchen for a lot of people. And some of that is born out of necessity. We were stuck at home. We had to cook. We didn't have any options for a while. Some of it has been born out of people who are now working from home that used to work in an office and they're having to feed themselves during the day versus work feeding them during the day. And what they're realizing is, you know, what I really love is not my time on Zoom at my dining room table, but the break I take to make myself lunch or prep my dinner and or run to the market. And so often those people are inquiring about what it actually means to go to culinary school. And I talk to them a lot about what the future would look like once they finish a program, whether it's in the pastry world or the culinary world. And there are still a healthy number of people who are very excited about the idea of being in a restaurant. And 
Yes, it looks a little different in a restaurant kitchen than it used to. But I do think that avenue has a ton of appeal to a green cook. And I have not seen a huge change in that goal post-COVID versus pre-COVID. You mean it feels like about the same number of students who maybe have their sights set on restaurant work? It does. But I will say in from a, more, a higher level perspective, and I don't think this is as COVID specific, we've been open since 2012. And the percentage of people who really wanted to go down that classic restaurant or bakery path has changed a lot over those years. And I tend to see more people now who are really interested in birthing a home or kind of cottage-based food business of some kind. And I would probably be remiss to say COVID didn't have any impact on that because we did get so used to takeout. But this idea that, say, a pastry student could graduate from the pastry program and start a sourdough business, one of our students did, and it was incredibly successful, or start launching a subscription pastry box business. We've had many students do the same thing. Um, Those kinds of paths, I think, are becoming much more appealing to people than they were 10 years ago, and definitely more appealing than they may have been 18 months ago. I mean, there's so much about that that's so interesting to me. You know, I was just talking today, I was on the road today, and I was having a conversation with a chef friend of mine in Connecticut. You know, we were talking about, um, I mean, it's it's almost too long a question to properly ask, but basically, you know, there's this whole notion of the reset within the industry right now. Um, There's a very um, growing, I think, and concerted effort to deal with a lot of the dysfunction of the industry. Um, there's a real, there's been a lot of talk. Um, Dave Nafeld, you know, San Francisco chef, who you and I both yeah. know has been very outspoken about, you know, prices are going to go up. You know, I mean, there are these people who are, are I think, a growing number of chefs and restaurateurs who want to bring their, you know, their P&L in line and, and uh, you know, deal with issues like maybe finally, you know, eradicating the tipping system and all this stuff. And I think a logical endpoint of a lot of change that people are calling for is that restaurants are maybe going to become, certainly some of them, more expensive. Um, dining out may become a, a less frequent luxury for people. Um, and, and certain cities that are very saturated with restaurants may not be able to sustain as many. And, and I think that means people are going to start looking to different business models, right? This is what I found interesting about your answer. Um, I feel like the kind of thinking you're describing, uh, again, not for purposes of, you know, hygiene or safety protocols or any of that, uh, but something that grew out of the, the, just this unprecedented extended moment we've all just come through, I think is very much in line with what the marketplace is maybe going to want in terms of a, you know, like a more of a, a number of different strata of what a dining experience might be, um, or even eliminating the word experience from just putting your hands on some really good food. Does that resonate with you at all? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Whether you are a chef with tons of concepts and you're looking at how those will exist in this new world of food and hospitality, or you're an up and coming cook and you're focusing on something very specific, I think this idea that people have realized that they are sufficient enough to 
cook a lot of the basic things they need at home, but they're also willing and able to go the extra mile to seek out something very special has become a huge part of the food scene in San Francisco. And Solejo, who you and I both know, has written a lot about these small businesses around the Bay Area that whether it's making a really artisanal flour tortilla or Detroit style pizza or a musubi influenced croissant with spam and sesame seeds on the inside. And you drive all over town to find these things and you reserve them on a Google form on a certain day of the week at a certain time and you set your alarm and and people are doing these things and they're supporting these businesses. And to me, that just that opens this world of opportunity to people who are coming to culinary or pastry school to really find that thing you love and put it out there without the capital investment that we're so used to having to make in order to launch a business. And it's great that the Bay Area really supports people doing those things out of their home. Um, and as much as you can do that and get your feet wet that way, I think it's an incredible way to take skills you learn at culinary or pastry school, test them without as much of a risk, and see what the market wants. I'd love to go back to something you said uh, in the earlier part of the conversation. You know, you were talking about people who you know, spend all this time at home in the last year. They're, you know, they never want to see another Zoom call. Um, you know, people were cooking. They were kind of realizing that's what they loved, maybe in part because it was juxtaposed, you know, like in the same space, you know, you weren't going to one place to do one thing and, you know, the, the, you weren't able to compartmentalize necessarily in that way. But am I, I, I want to make sure I was understanding where you, what I took from that was that there were people who maybe, either decided to switch careers or that on an avocational or hobbyist level, they wanted to become good enough cooks that they were going to school. Is that the type of student you were describing, people who fit into those two columns? I mean, not exclusively, but are you saying there were people who pre-pandemic hadn't thought about coming to cooking school who, because of the way their relationship to cooking deepened during the last year, then decided to do it? Absolutely, yes. People, some of them were people that had really never even cooked until COVID and went so deep so fast and realized either they had a ton of stuff to learn and they loved it, or they always had loved it and they wanted to go really deep in one specific area of cooking or pastry um, or finding their way to culinary school. And some of them are quitting their jobs because they're having this moment of, I've been through an you know, almost 18 months of this horrific pandemic and they're reevaluating what's important to them and whatever that job was maybe wasn't that thing. Or we happen to have the ability for people to do the full culinary and pastry program part-time so they don't have to quit their day job. It takes longer, but you can still do the same program. And a lot of people are really excited about that as well. They're going to keep their day job, but at night and on the weekend, be able to go to culinary or pastry school and see what kind of opportunities might be out there for them professionally once they finish. So the last question I have for you is, you know, I have, I've always said, well, you've seen this, Jody. I've come to the school a few times. I, you know, you've been nice. You were nice enough to host me for a book event a few years ago uh, when my last book came out. Um, I was part of the, of the food media lab, which was amazing. Um, uh, I did a virtual thing with your, some of your students a few weeks ago, along with some other, you know, writers and, 
uh, food purveyors and, and whatnot. Um, you know, the most recent interaction, the one I just described, this, this, interact, this you know, remote session, something that really struck me was, you know, I'd love always to a person, and this sounds very hokey, and I, it's, I don't even really feel like it's an overgeneralization. I love going to cooking schools. I love talking to culinary students. Uh, they're always, almost to a person in my experience, they're so happy to be there doing what they're doing. Um, they're so passionate about what they're doing. Uh, and I always feel like in general, these are fairly optimistic people. You know, they I think they see, um, you know, good things ahead of them usually because they're doing something they, they love. At least that's why I think it is. So here we are, you know, in the midst of this horrible time. And I have to say, yes, it was by remote. But when I did this session a few weeks ago with some of your students, they seemed like the same way culinary students always seem to me. Um, uh, it was one of the more positive interactions I'd had. You know, there wasn't like this pall hanging over it the way there is over everything these days. I I'm wondering if you experience your students that way. I mean, I, I mean, certainly the job market right now is very favorable to, to anybody, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. anybody, the worst student in your school could probably get a job the day they graduate right now. But putting putting right. aside, you know, that kind of mercenary point of view, am I picking up on something real? They just, they seem to me the way, you know, if there weren't masks in the room, I don't think I would have perceived any difference in the energy from that group than I would have from a group I might have spoken to in 2019. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I also think maybe some of that comes from, you know, we, we were home for a year. We all had these difficult experiences in one way or another. And being able to be in a kitchen doing what you love and coming to the realization that the thing you love to do the most could actually be your job is is kind of this epiphany moment for people. I mean, you can love to downhill ski, but trying to figure out how to make skiing your full-time job is is hard. But if what you found as your love is cooking or baking or making pastries, and you you get yourself to the place where you're actually turning that into your profession, which is a lot for people. It's a huge leap of faith and a giant step then I find those students are so grateful every day for every single bit of information that comes at them. I mean, it's why I love going to work every day. Nothing makes me happier than that. So no, I, I absolutely think you picked up on a vibe that I'm fortunate enough to be around all the time. Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a good one. I feel really seen. <laughs> it's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite <laughs> ingredient is to work with. You're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs, an independent podcast. We'll be right back. This was very enjoyable. Thank yeah, you. that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so. My thanks again to Jody Liano for joining us for the lineup segment this week. Thank you, Jody. As always, a great conversation, and I appreciate you doing it, especially appreciated you doing it on relatively short notice this week. I guess that's what friends are for. So before I get to uh, the next two segments of the show, I wanted to mention something. Beverly Kim, who was on the podcast a couple of months ago, I got a lot of great feedback from that interview. Beverly's a very, very uh, civic-minded, very active, very activist voice in the industry. 
And she sent me last night the infographic for an event, a virtual event that's happening this coming Monday, May 24th. It is happening at 5 p.m. Pacific time. That's 7 p.m. Central time, 8 p.m. Eastern time. It is a conversation about issues facing the AAPI community. That's obviously something that we've discussed on the show recently with uh, Brandon Jew. We had a dedicated segment to it. It also came up in my conversation with Christine Lau. Uh, it is something uh, that I'm trying to do whatever small part I can play to help amplify and support efforts that are uh, being uh, put on to push back against this horrible trend of anti-Asian and Pacific Islander sentiment and violence that's spreading across this country. It's quite a horrifying thing. Beverly is, as part of her Doe Something initiative, that's spelled D-O-U-G-H something, obviously it's a play on do something, they're having a conversation virtually. It is a fundraiser. It's only $10 to be a part of it. And it is a conversation about issues facing the AAPI community. It happens to feature a number of people who are friends of the pod, uh, many of whom have been on multiple times. Uh, Beverly, who's been on once, of course, as I just said, is involved in organizing it. Brandon Jew, who's been on a couple of times, three times, I think, at this point, is a part of the panel. Naisha Arrington, another uh, multiple return guest here. And one of our most frequent guests, Prithi Mystery. They are all part of the panel as is Eric Bruner Yang. Eric, we don't know each other, but I'm delighted you're going to be a part of it. It's going to be moderated by Monica Eng. It sounds like it's going to be quite the conversation. I'm going to try to attend it myself virtually. Uh, to find out more and see where you can purchase your virtual ticket, go to Beverly Kim's Instagram feed, and that's simply at Beverly Kim, B-E-V-E-R-L-Y-K-I-M, there's a link tree set up in her bio line, and the at least as I'm recording this show today, the very topmost listing in the link tree site is to information about that virtual event. So I hope you can join that. So every week in this space, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be featuring some of the newest and most appealing job listings from our brand new sponsor, Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, or BMRS. So please be sure to listen in for that each episode. So Brad himself is joining us today, but just for the record, the firm is much more than just Brad. It is actually a seven-person firm currently with specialists working full-time to match the best candidates with the best jobs across the country and the world. We encourage you to bookmark their website. That is restaurant-solutions.com, where most of their current job opportunities are listed and frequently updated, so you should follow that and check in on that page periodically. And you can also follow their Instagram feed at BMRS Food Jobs, where they also highlight some key and marquee listings. So since this is our first week with BMRS on board, I wanted to take a minute or a couple of minutes to introduce you briefly to Brad and get the first set of featured positions directly from him. So here is a short conversation with Brad Metzger. Brad, welcome to the show. You've been here before. This is the first time you've been here as a sponsor, and I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for becoming part of the Andrew Talks to Chefs family. It's long overdue, Andrew. I don't know what I was thinking before, but finally I'm on board and I'm so excited about it. Can I just quickly take this to a personal place and remind you, I don't know if you remember how we met for the first time. Caitlin and I were in Santa Monica for her birthday a few years ago. And we were just walking around, knocking around the boardwalk. 
And this guy I'd never met says to me, you're Andrew. And then looks at Caitlin, my wife, and says, and you must be Caitlin. And that was you. Yeah, I was a big fan and still am a big fan of the show. And I recognized you and, of course, Caitlin from the intros. And I was like, there's Andrew. And now here we are, which I just love. So, Brad, before we highlight a couple of jobs that you're currently looking to fill, why don't you just quickly, since this is the first show that features BMRS uh, as a sponsor, why don't you just quickly tell people about your firm, what you do and, and how you do it that sets you guys apart? Well, we're a hospitality recruiting firm based here in LA. Been in business 17 years. I started in the industry 37 years ago as a prep cook at the original Spago and Sunset. I worked in the industry for years and years and years and then started up my recruiting firm 17 years ago. And we're very passionate about what we do. And we just try to match up amazing hospitality professionals of all levels in terms of management front and back of the house with awesome employers and awesome positions all over the country. Of course, we're heavily weighted on positions in Southern California and on the West Coast. However, we place people in Russia, Kenya, Turks and Caicos, Cabo San Lucas, all over the United States. And how, I mean, this is mentioned, of course, in some of the ad copy that's featured in the show now, but if people want to reach out about a particular job or just to kind of establish a relationship and have an ongoing dialogue, which is something we'll talk about in the coming weeks that you encourage people to do with the firm, what's the best way for people to do that? They can reach out via email. We created a special email address for all of Andrew's listeners, and that is atc at restaurant-solutions.com. And my wife might kill me, but we're giving out my cell phone. It's 310-245-5108 as a very special contact for all of your listeners, Andrew. Now, wait a minute. That, that's your regular cell phone? Correct. Wow. All right. Well, uh, listeners, you heard it here first. You, I mean, what do you have, Brad? Like seven employees, something like that? Yes, yeah, seven, including me right now. Yeah. Okay, and this is a pipeline to you. Correct. I, I want to hear from your listeners. Your listeners are the best pro- top professionals in the industry, which is why we're doing this with you, Andrew. And I want to hear directly from them. You know, we're a very personal service. We really want to get to know the chefs and managers that we represent. We want to understand what they're looking for in that next step in their career. Because these incredible jobs pass through our desk uh, all the time. So we want to have an idea of what these listeners are looking for for their next step in their career. So when that crosses the desk, we can just reach out directly. Well, everybody listening, I hope you heard that. I hope you will take Brad up on that. That's not a, obviously, that's not a normal thing. And it's uh, it's much appreciated, Brad. So why don't you, this is going to be a regular thing. We're going to have you on, uh, maybe it'll be every week. Uh, certainly, uh, I'll be communicating some of the top positions you're looking to fill every week. But why don't you give people a taste of what's out there right now? What are some positions that you are currently in the hunt for that people might reach out to you about? We have a ton of positions. We probably have about 80 positions. However, the highlights are the exec chef position at Juniper and Ivy in San Diego. This is one of San Diego's best restaurants. Very, very attractive package, including full relocation, We also have a new relaunch of a very, very acclaimed restaurant up in Monterey, California. They're doing a complete remodel from top to bottom, 
And that salary is up to around 140000 a year plus relocation. We also have a general manager position at a one-star Michelin restaurant in LA. And then we have multi-unit corporate chef for a hip fine dining steakhouse in LA, exec chef for a one-star Michelin restaurant in Beverly Hills, exec chef at Yale University for one of their halls. That's a, a six-figure job right there. Then we have something really unique. It's a Monday through Friday daytime only position with no nights in Las Vegas, cooking for high level casino executives Monday through Friday. And again, six figures. This is up to 100 or 120 a year. Those are just a few, but we have manager positions. We have sommelier positions, wine director, director of ops. They're all over the map. Pastry, bread production, just everything. That's great. And I do want to stress, you named several that are in California. You did mention one in Vegas, one at Yale, which is in Connecticut. I do want to stress that you do have jobs around the country and in many cases around the globe. Correct. Thank you for checking in with us. I look forward to bringing you back weekly or semi-weekly. And uh, again, I'm just thrilled to have you on board. And I hope people will reach out and be in touch with you guys. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for joining us, Brad. And again, our great thanks to BMRS for your support of the podcast. Again, I would encourage you to bookmark and keep a frequent eye on the BMRS website, restaurant-solutions.com to stay abreast of up-to-the-minute job listings, whether to pursue a specific job or just to establish an ongoing dialogue for when your dream job crosses their desk. Brad and the BMRS team would love to hear from you and learn about what you're looking for. Please be in touch with them at their dedicated Andrew Talks to Chefs email address that is atc at restaurant-solutions.com or you can call or text Brad. I still can't quite believe this, but you can call or text Brad directly at 310-245-5108. Again, that is a very special gesture that he's making to you, our listeners, and I hope you will avail yourselves of it to start a dialogue. Be sure to tell him Andrew sent you. So our feature guest this week is Alex Raj. Alex is someone I've known for almost 20 years The first restaurant uh, that she worked at was a tapas restaurant in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City. At the time, I lived basically across the street and halfway down the block. I I was in there all the time. We we got to know each other. I also got to know the man who is now her husband and co-chef and business partner, Edder Montero. And the two of them now own and operate a handful of some of the just best, I I would just say outright best restaurants in New York. But they, all their stuff lives in the, the kind of the Spanish lane, although each of their concepts is very distinct. Each of the restaurants has its own voice and focus. Lavara, which is where this interview was conducted, is in Brooklyn, and it is Spanish cuisine that is served there with a Jewish and Moorish influence. St. Julivert's Fishery is a fish and seafood restaurant. Also in Brooklyn, there's a lot of latitude in what can go on the menu there. Alex actually mentions that in the conversation, but it's all, you know, nautically oriented, I guess I would say. El Quinto Pino is their regional tapas restaurant in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. And Texaco, which I fear I'm probably mispronouncing and probably mispronounced at the top of the show. Uh, Longtime listeners know once in a while I just have a mental block. I've never been able to quite pronounce the name of that restaurant. I mean, no offense by it. It's just a a quirk or a failing of mine. But that is their Basque restaurant on 9th Avenue, also in the Chelsea district of Manhattan. 
Uh, Alex and I sat down. This is one of these interviews. It's partially biographical. We do get into a bit of her backstory. But just as much as that, it's very philosophical. It's also uh, kind of a free associative chat amongst two old friends. Um, all of it, of course, pertaining to food and restaurants and cooking and chefing and all that. But it is, as some of the interviews with people I do have that kind of familiarity with, uh, it is a little uh, less strict in its focus. But I actually kind of love that. I hope you all feel like maybe you're sitting there at the table with us, just chopping it up and having a conversation at least. That's how I experienced it when I played it back and edited it. Our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And I should also say that Sam Pellegrino enjoyed collaborating with Alex and her team to celebrate International Women's Day, known as Festa della Donna in Italy, through St. Julivert Fisheries Mimosa Social, and that they look forward to future collaborations with this important chef and her restaurants. Okay, now let me get you to it. This is my recent conversation recorded in April at Lavara Restaurant in Brooklyn, New York with Alex Raj. Here you go. I, I don't know when the last time I actually saw you was. We text once in a while. Yeah. When did I see you last? I, I mean, we did one of these once. Oh, you know what? It was that panel with Tom Colicchio. It was the live and, show. Yeah, yeah. With your band and the, everything. At the Bell House. Yeah. <laughs> that was a fun afternoon. That was fun. Um, I met Greg that day. I had never met him. Oh, you guys had never met? Two big mm -mm. Brooklyn chef and restaurateurs, Greg Backstrom. Yeah. Yeah, for people who don't know what we're talking about, we did a live show as part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival in January of 2019. That seems way longer ago than it was. It was just really two years ago. It was a ago. lifetime. We yeah. were talking about completely different things. We couldn't do that right now if we wanted to. No. So before we jump in, I've been kind of making a, a habit is of asking people because of this time we're in. Can you just give me, listeners, just a sense of how you guys you know, are doing as we just recently crossed the one year mark into this challenge that we're all living through? I'm not one to like really sugarcoat things, but I think we're sort of leading with gratitude. And I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but honestly, we've been through lots of things. COVID is not the first one, as you know. And, um, and we have always survived um, because we're like willing to do the work. But you know, COVID was like the first thing where you couldn't work your way out of the problem. Yeah. Um, will. Will will wasn't enough. Yeah. Or just work. Yeah. Like, because you were forced to stop working. Yeah. Um, and so it was a time to, like, get outside of yourself and just be like, you know, there was a lot of, like, despair and um, and just trying to, like, what's the best reaction to this moment? Like we thought it was going to be a three week closure, which is so naive, like in retrospect, but you know, I think our staff embraced that openly, you know, just kind of like, yes, three weeks paid off, you know, and then, you know, three weeks became three months and three months became six months and, um, and so on and so forth. And we've just been really lucky because a lot of our staff, um, we were able to hustle some, uh, relief meals. And then I think we did them really well. And so we were able to like really get on a schedule where we were able to produce 
a lot of food um, for people in need and also retain um, some uh, really senior employees. Um, That's no small thing right now, right? No, I mean, this huge. is one of the big stories of this moment, right? You, you see it on Instagram. Anyone who follows enough chefs and restaurants, people are like trying to restaff like their entire all their their entire ranks in some restaurants well yes so there that there's that but our, for us personally it was really about just like protecting the livelihood of a few key people that um that we felt were like especially you know vulnerable that was really gratifying we did not get the first round of ppp that was really distressing um but then when we did get the second round of ppp I, th- I think we were able to not feel so cynical and and like sort of injured <laughs> when you do this profession like you know the compensation is never great like you feel like if you if you do it well enough and you can like sort of eke out a living it just felt very punishing and it just felt so cruel like the way that it landed on restaurants and so getting the ppp did feel like relief in the sense that you could just survive like not have to like put you know move out of your home like I mean that's kind of where we were um so uh yeah that let us like just be a little more considerate about how we were going to pivot and I think you know we're we're not conservative but um but we're experienced and I think you know our we wanted to make sure that if we were going to open back up that we would have some continuity and we knew that it was going to sort of like expand and contract. And we just didn't want it to be doing this constant pivot that was like really exhausting. We wanted to be able to like create something that was, that had like some legs and, and could last a little bit. And um, and our staff has like sort of walked with us on that. It's been great. It's great. Yeah. It's great to be sitting here with you like at Lavara. I'm lucky. <laughs> um, yeah. St. Julivert right next door. I mean, there is this feeling of places, you know, here, here in New York anyway, you know, places are open. To, a lot of places have reopened. They're starting to welcome people indoors again. I mean, it, it's, it's funny when you said we thought it was going to be three weeks and then three months. There was this moment about a year ago where people were starting to talk about, oh, I think we're going to reopen this summer. You know, there was that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, people who were pretty well informed, you know, not, I mean, people who were, I mean, uh, one mutual friend of ours, I don't want to name anyone's name, and I'm not being critical, but I remember talking to this person May of last year, and they were starting to get ready, you know, they thought they were about to reopen, you right. know, and it was so much further off than anyone could have. Wait, it was just you- this rolling realization of, of, how big the enemy was, you know, right. what we, what you, what you and we, all of us in our own way were up against. Right. And I think, you know, one of the most important things was like trying to get the, you know, the landlord to understand like what we were up against. Um, and then also open responsibly, but then also scale it. Right. Um, not just for the safety of everybody, but also, so you just like, didn't like invest all of the money that you had saved and then just not be able to come back. Like opening a restaurant requires like a, you know, a, a good amount of working capital. And that, it's like, that's what you were doing is like reopening a restaurant like three times, four times, five times. Like it's a lot. That's a way of describing it that amazingly I hear from a lot of different, like a lot of different people have come to that description independently, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to how valid it comparison that must be and for anyone who's ever been through the opening of a restaurant you're describing something that's enormously stressful that's enormously time consuming that uses up all your bandwidth it's amazing to me how many people have put it in those terms so can we talk for a minute you know you have a bunch of restaurants that i really love 
Can we talk about where your ideas come from for the restaurants? That's the first thing I wanted to ask you about today. Because to me, they're very distinct, but they all kind of are of a piece. You know, it reminds me of like when you see a restaurant menu and everything just seems to belong together. Like I look at your restaurants, they all seem to belong in the same family. I do wonder where the ideas come from because they seem to have a little more depth to them than I feel like a lot of other concepts have. There seems to be more of a cerebral component to it to me a little bit. You're nodding as I say this. I don't know if you're just taking in the question, but why don't we just take Well, no one ever asked that question, so I never answer it. And so it's just, it's my personal, like, process. And um, I enjoy having, like, an interior life about restaurants and an exterior life about restaurants. Oh, that's an interesting Um, And it used to offend me that nobody would ever ask because um, I feel like m- white men get asked that kind of stuff all the time and they're like nobody would ask what like where the restaurant comes from yeah or just oh. like or, or just that it, it you know like that it has like subtext okay. you know well here and, I, okay well right I wasn't and, fishing no no, no no but it is I wasn't fishing for the compliment but, but let's yeah. start with Lavara. tell I mean Lavara. first of all why don't you in your words tell people what Lavara is and then I'd love to know kind of as much as you can remember it from like its seedling stage like oh, yeah. how did this thing come about because it, it is a you know what you do on the here in at, certainly in normal times and I experienced it a little I told you I was as you know I was here for dinner outdoors yeah. not long ago um, you know there there's I learned something you know yeah. and I sometimes google it's some a component of a dish on your menu and I you know and I it, it's anyway I'm this I'm taking it's forever deep. with the question it's now but give, what's the uh-huh. genesis first of all tell people what this restaurant is and then how did it yeah. come about so I mean to start with the other the, the beginning of your question they are co- more than concepts, I would say they are conceptual. Like I am uh, pleasing myself um, in the context of the of you know what can be perceived as a very narrow um, specialty. But I, for me, what I've actually been doing is making space for myself where other people won't make space for me, and I like that. I like doing it. Um, I like doing it as a as a challenge and I like um, to be original and not uh, do what other people are doing and I like um, I like details you know like I like I like details and I also really like to be inspired by things that are not food or other food people necessarily even though I love all those things um, so <clears throat> Uh, I think, you know, we always wanted to start with tapas and use tapas as a way to uh, re, um, like, create, a, like, a, like, new criteria for for talking about regional Spanish cuisine at a time where Spain kind of seemed to ab- ab- abandoning its own regional um specificity and turning towards something very modern and like making people make a choice between the two and we just didn't want we were really enchanted with the traditional but we just wanted to create like a current expression of those things so uh, that was tapas and tapas are universally loved universally loved and, and and we thought that that would be the best way to generate um, new standards for Spanish food so that we could cook Spanish food the way that we wanted and not the way that people expected us to do it. Um, and then to go from general to particular in, an, in a lot of different directions. So, you know, it was always in our plan to open a Basque restaurant um, and um, at this, you know, while we were planning the tapas 
place, which was, you know, back to when we met in 1999. Mm -hmm. And then um, always wanted to explore what it was like to eat standing up for people and kind of force people into that. I, I think it's a comfort zone, but it could be a discomfort zone, I guess, as well. And then with Lavara, um, just after spending a lot of years really focused on regional Spanish cooking, like I just kept noticing um, elements that, for me, were so clearly diasporic in Spanish cooking or... Um, you know, like Sephardic um, touch points that were remaining in Christianized dishes. Um, so I, I became like just sort of like deeply committed to that story and calling out those details because I felt like in Spain there wasn't um, a reflect. They weren't. They have Judaeas and like these old Jewish neighborhoods and stuff, but they're serving like, you know, sort of medieval cuisine like with just pine nuts and raisins everywhere and um i wasn't really interested in the superficiality of that story i would i was more interested in like you know when you when you force these people to either convert like what happened to the food as you christianize these dishes and then also if these people refuse to be converted how were they secretly living like and expressing um those traditions and religions like as subtext within the culture and then also if they left and went to Mexico or Goa or Kerala, India or Cochin, China like that's where like my Argentine sort of magical realism person comes in and it's just like well what if they came back and sort of reorganized like the existing foods in Spain like what would you come up with and sort of what you come up with would be a more synergistic Israeli food landscape but edited it so that it, <laughs> it would only have you know so, what I consider sort of like the good parts you know like yeah so that's so what, here's what's interesting to me what you Everything you just said is fascinating, right? But at the so that could lead a lot of people to come up with things on a menu that maybe weren't necessarily going to be delicious, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it seems to me like you have not allowed yourself to be overwhelmed by all the history and culture, all the things you just described that you're personally fascinated by. It seems to me like the 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 priority for you is still. And please tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like your priority is, first and foremost, the food's got to taste really great. Well, I grew up eating really great food. I had really, uh, my mother and my grandmother were really like, extraordinary cooks, and obviously, um, so too were Edder's grandparents and, and family. Um, plus, I traveled, which is, I think, the singular most important transformative thing in anyone's life. And... Um, being the kid of immigrants like I traveled back and forth between two cultures and then stopped and saw cousins in other places in Latin America like that's like a gift you know and um, speaking another language is also another um, way into understanding other cultures um, you know tremendous uh, privilege so um, I think that like having a criteria or a point of view about what is good is like that's not negotiable like if you're going to open a good restaurant I think so that to me just is 
something that I have um, always have had a point of view or an opinion about. Um, I still um, so yes, deliciousness is a priority, but that's like it. it that is just a precondition of like the restaurants. Like I don't. That's not the challenging part. The challenging part is. Um, making sure that all the dishes belong in the same restaurant, like not having it be like arbitrary or random or, and redundant. I can't stand redundancy. <laughs> and, which is funny because no, in Spain there's a, a lot of redundancy on menus. Like, you know, it'll be like cod nine ways, but I, we don't do that. <laughs> but you're talking about, so you're talking about redundancy from like a flavor ingredient standpoint, not in necessarily one from like, yeah, a, yeah in one concept. right, not necessarily from a, yeah, a historical interest. Like, you could have dishes that have a similar origin point that's not going to really affect whether or not someone can enjoy. Oh, yeah. And I think I, I, I like everything to just like be tweaked and be singular like to our restaurant like some i don't want you to be able to get like what you get from us anywhere else like it's very personal it's it's all really personal that's an interesting comment that you don't want people to get the same be able to get the same i'm a middle child i never wanted to have the same like is that what you attributed to yes i hate having the same like dress as anybody else i hate having the same anything yes so i will do things like you know to to like intentionally like reject stuff that you know because i think that was the thing with the with the tapas like it it's it gets really annoying to like care deeply about this thing and then have other people treat it superficially it's like really hard when you're trying to do something deeply and um and like people are gliding over it so it makes me not want to do it for a while until i can like revisit it with like the same amount of purpose that I came to it with I kind of love that I mean I don't know if I've ever heard anyone put it quite like that it's such a basic thing though I think it's true of a lot of great restaurants that you do get things there that you can't get anywhere else right but it's I never heard anyone I don't think actually just state that I think there's a lot of great restaurants that just do what everyone else does really well too and I those are not the restaurants that attract me and and I'm I have my eye on them. They bother me. You know, like, they just bother me because I don't understand. I, I understand being that kind of cook, but I don't understand being a restaurateur and being that kind of cook when you can do whatever you want, but you don't really have anything to say. It doesn't interest me at all. There's craftspeople and artists, right? Yes. No? There are. I believe that. But do you have this point of view universally? Like, can you go, can you enjoy, like, a classic, like, can I name names? Like, mm-hmm. can you enjoy, like, Balthazar? I love Balthazar. Okay. Well, a lot of what's at Balthazar, though, is your standard issue. It's just done really well. But it is... it is mm, there. There's a lot of stuff there yes, that you could get. Oysters, for sure, and stuff. But Steak like, free. I mean, there's a lot on that yeah, menu but, that's like you could find in and prob- every bistro ever. And I will say, probably, I would only go there for like the most basic things now because I used to go there when Lee and Riyadh were there and I wouldn't order those things. Right. I would get the beef stroganoff. Okay. <laughs> but you do love that restaurant even though it is... I, it's a tradition for us because my daughter loves oysters okay. and so that's what we do. And I do... There's a couple tables there that are like really amazing. For me, Odeon is the is the sort of evergreen one. I After I got married at City Hall, we went to Odeon. And oh, nice. Odeon will be my place and I love taking my daughter there because the hostess is always dressed to the nines and she's so beautiful and like I, that kind of thing like that kind of real estate that's the other thing is like I've never been a person who's had that kind of real estate or that kind of people like that kind of like structural organization to like that requires like 
real money and real like that you like remember when i said you can't cook yourself out of COVID. like you can't cook yourself into investors or like you know having an address in soho or mm-hmm. tribeca you know so that there's an allure it's not that there's an allure it's just that like those are things that are accomplished with with resources right that i don't have but that adds to the appeal for you? Uh, it's just magical. Yeah. I did, I, it doesn't um, necessarily appeal to me all the time, but I, when I go there, it's like an, it's escapist. Yeah, well, I love when you said at Balthazar, there's a couple of tables. Yes, there's places in that room that are among the most romantic, perfect, like eight square feet in New York City. It's also like you can watch other people yeah. enjoying um, food in a really, it's just there's something really like, that feeling that anything could happen. Right. It makes you feel like the way you think New York is until you live here and you realize that like those moments are, they, they exist, but they're not, right. they're not all the time. But you time. still got to pick up your, you know, your dry cleaning and like get your kids to school and yeah, and also <laughs> make the train and <laughs> you have to be paying attention. And so like yeah. about this art is the kind of restaurant that makes you pay attention. Let's skip into your backstory. Tell people where and how you grew up. I grew up in Minneapolis um, I was made in Canada, born in Chicago, and grew up in Minneapolis. Uh, in so a you were bilingual, traveling, bilingual traveling from the start. Yeah, uh, my parents uh, came here. My dad, um, my parents came here when they were like 26 to the U.S. Um, my dad came to do um, some education, and my mom was just had a baby. My older sister and was and along they, for the ride. And they came from. They came from Argentina. Um, my mom, uh, my mom's mom was actually born in Brooklyn and they took my grandmother over when she was eight months old. And so my mom did the sort of reverse migration, like, uh, to the United States, not to Brooklyn. Um, and, uh, my dad came here just to get some, um, uh, special, like, uh, special education. He's a doctor and he wanted to, um, He's a nephrologist specifically, and he wanted to learn how to dialyze people and like do some research. So he got a fellowship in Canada. The guy who invited him forgot he was coming and got transferred to another place. <laughs> and so when they got there, he didn't have a job. So he had to hustle and like find a job. He got a job in Chicago, and then um, got a, a like a subsequently got another like fellowship or residency in um, Minneapolis. So came over to Minneapolis where they had. Uh, my little sister who lives in Brooklyn now and um, and then at that point things were going really south politically in Argentina and that was when they decided that they would try to stay but they had originally planned to go back Um, and so yeah my mom had to go back to school and my dad got a job and we grew up in the US um, in the Midwest going you know back and forth to Argentina just to see our grandparents what was how did food figure into your life at home and dining like just what kind of presence was it well food was just like the center of like every memory that i have in argentina whether it was like actually cooking it like over fire um or at my great-grandfather's house where my grandmother did all the cooking Um, my grandmother was a dentist but she was just an extraordinary cook and and like a very i don't she really enjoyed like cooking and um, making food and, and doing stuff with her hands. I don't know that she loved being a dentist, 
but the, my mom was so the same. Like my mom went into the family business. She was a dentist. She had an office in my grandmother's like uh, office until she, until she left home, and uh, and I I don't know that either one of them loved it, but they both did love to cook and entertain. Like my grandmother loved. The last time I saw my grandma. She was 94 uh, years old, and she wasn't cooking anymore, but she would tell me what she would cook if people were coming over. Like, this is what I would make. And, like, I'll never forget, you know, like the whole menu. Wow. Yeah. Just and like so, dreaming of it or fantasizing about yeah, it. Yeah, and who yeah. would be there. And like, she always had younger friends. She was like really special. It's yeah. great you got to have her that long. I did. I did. I didn't see her as much as most people see their grandparents, especially uh, as we got older. It became very expensive to go. Like when yeah. we were little, we went a lot. Yeah. Um, and then, but a lot of food all the time. And my parents were like pretty adventurous um, for considering they came from such a conservative place, you know, because like Argentina, I think people don't realize there's like very few like sort of like remaining indigenous dishes um, and I think that they're actually like expanding that repertoire again now because there's a, like, more of an emphasis on like celebrating and researching that kind of you know more Andean cuisine because they did such a thorough job of exterminating um, all the indigenous people are like pushing them into like very very rural areas. Um, so most of the food in Argentina is Italian, uh, Jewish. Um, and the pastry is like very sort of English and French. Yeah, this so, is something I think most people don't know about yeah. Argentina. You know, um, I'm trying to think of other people I've spoken to. Well, you know, one of Michelle Bernstein's, Chef right. Michelle Bernstein's parents is Argentinian. And yeah. like, you know, I've interviewed her about stuff and, you, you know, like the Italian influence and the, you know, mm -hmm. there are these like things that you just, if you haven't heard that, somebody's taught you that, you would have no idea. Right. But it is a pretty eclectic Kind yeah. of menu over there. It's not just steak and Malbec, right? Like that's no, not and that's it, not the Argentinian palate. Well, they love that. They love meat. They eat every part of the animal. I mean, I think that that's one of the, that was a real gift. Like growing up on what we call the achuras, like um, blood sausage, chorizo, uh, chinchulines, which is like intestine, uh, sweetbreads, tripe, tongue, all those things. I think what's really cool about growing up eating those things like very straight in a very straightforward way is that um, a lot of other cultures that you come across later in life really um, uh, do excellent versions of those things as well, often sauced. But in Argentina, they're very simple, um, and so I felt like I just had a baseline understanding of those textures, those flavors. It's just like a segue. It's like not a bad place to like depart from. Before we get too far from your childhood, what kind of student were you? I was really good at the things that I loved. I'm, I was like very daydreamy, so I'm not so good at the things I didn't love. Like I did, you know, okay in math until around 10th grade. And then you would just zone out on it? Yeah. I didn't feel that challenged by the school that I was going to, and I didn't feel like the material that I was coming across was really... Um, interesting to me. Um, I mean, that's like Minneapolis is like a very, as my daughter would say now, basic place. Um, <laughs> it was a great place to grow up because I could be very independent and there was like great music. Right. And I was like kind of 
like a weak punk rocker. Like I wasn't really brave enough to be like truly punk rock. I was like more like new wave. Got it. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine. I I mean, like knowing you as an adult, I would expect that you were good at English and liter you know literature, and I would expect you were good at language, and I would expect you were probably pretty good at anything that had history as a component of it. Would that be accurate? In, I was interested in those things. Um, I was really, but a lot of times, like I satisfied those interests by reading about food. I was like voracious food reader. Even as a kid? Yeah. So like, what Oh my God, of- I would read the back of the Campbell Soup can, like anything food related. I, all the time, we would make a lot of homemade pasta and I would just play with the dough all the time. Like I, I just, I was pretty food obsessed from a very young age. What, but from the reading standpoint, like what's something you remember reading and being, like what's something all that really like stuff. captured you and consumed you, no pun intended? Like but, uh, food wise? Yeah, food wise. Well, I can tell you, um, the Julia Child, all the gourmet magazines. My mom had gourmet from a really young age, the Time Life books. She had this like series of little books that were like sort of, I don't know if they were published by Time Life, but they kind of look like the little addendums to the Time like Life Like the single series. subject yeah, kind of like fish and exactly. shellfish. Except for, no, it was like Ukrainian cuisine. Oh, really? Uh, okay, I've never seen this. Uh, there was, yeah, I, my mom accidentally gave them away. I said, she said, do you want them? And I said, yes, but can you save them for me? Because I didn't have an apartment at the time. I didn't know where I was oh, living. No. And then I think she took them to the Goodwill, and I'll never forgive her. But like, I mean... There, there was one. That, I remember the Ukrainian one so much because it had the colorful eggs on the cover and all okay. the Easter stuff that was really amazing. But there was a Filipino one. They, they were just all different cultures. Like I, I always knew that there were a lot of cultures. And then um, my mom and her friends would do potlucks where everybody would cook something out of like Mother Joffrey's. <laughs> it was like the '70s, you know. So like people, potlucks were big. It was the Midwest. Yeah. They were all liberal, you know. And everyone and you know. Making those Indian dishes required like a big pantry and they were labor intensive for somebody who didn't like cook in that tradition all the time and just have that kind of baseline. Yeah. And so her friends and she would like, they would split it up and then everyone would bring like an Indian dish and they would have these Indian potlucks. And so that's like, it, you know, it wasn't like I knew the name of every dish, um, but I just, I knew those flavors, you know, I, to the extent that they were like, and I, you know, I had a, had a deep sense of the compromises that were being made to the food based on the ingredients that were available in the Midwest. Like that was something I just understood. Like I understood that I never even had like really good olive oil until I was like pretty old. Like considering like how much oil baseline we used to- supermarket. Right. Yeah. Like I understood those those. Uh, substitutions like I knew that like the joy of cooking the reason that it had to be revised all the time was because there was access to like you know more things but I also knew that there was like squirrel and raccoon in there and I thought that was like so fascinating I was like who's eating squirrel and raccoon here's my question for you you grew up with this interest in food you grew up with this interest I mean to hear you talk about yourself as a kid reading all this stuff you know and that that leads almost seamlessly it seems to me to the adult I was just talking to at the beginning of the conversation about like where the ideas come from right there's a uh, there's a I mean there's a to me a clear dotted line but the question I have is you know you described your grandmother became a dentist you know didn't go into food your mom didn't you know people who love food how early did you feel like you had an openness to pursuing this as a life and a career 
Very, because I loved restaurants too. Um, I loved when my parents would take us out a fair amount and I loved, and when I say they took us out, they didn't take us out to fancy places. We would mostly go to Chinese restaurants and um, Vietnamese restaurants in Minneapolis were very good. And um, occasionally like for a birthday, we go to Japan. I remember like the first Japanese food I ever had, and just like blew my mind. And um, you, ate, you mean sushi or hot? Or the first everything? time I had sushi, my dad brought raw tuna home, and he like mixed Coldman's mustard with soy sauce because there was no wasabi, and he made me taste it, and I'll just like never forget like that feeling of like it going like up my nose, and uh-huh. like just like the, just like extraordinary. <laughs> I loved it. I, it loved, was like it was like a drug. <laughs> I was like Jim on taxi when like he a, has his first, like pot, a, first pot brownie. You know, like. Right, there was a euphoria. <laughs> Something changed. You say you loved restaurants. What about them did you love? Yeah, I wanted that to be like my lived experience. Like I wanted to grow up in a restaurant. We, I played restaurant all the time. At home? Yeah. So like you nice, would serve people and like have a menu? Like when people play family, we would play a restaurant. Uh-huh. Or like, and... Uh, we had this like old teepee that my grandma sent in the mail once <laughs> and uh, we would sit in the teepee and like pretend it was a restaurant and uh, like make up like outrageous names for dishes you know like do you remember any of them I remember saying chicken a la king and to this day I don't know what chicken a la king is what will you be having I'll have the chicken a la king but you just love the whole uh, it's funny this reminds me of I used to always you know you see in old movies old movies when people live in hotels yeah you know in New York City and to this day that's a dream of mine oh like I would live in a hotel in two seconds, if you could have an apartment Especially in a like hotel. Especially like the Chelsea Hotel? <laughs> well, the Chelsea. I actually spent a night at the Chelsea Hotel once. It wasn't that great an experience, so, I have to so tell So did you. my cook. It wasn't I had a, to go pick her up. It wasn't a very good... It wasn't... It was Well, I didn't have an adventure or anything, but I'm just saying it was not exactly... Uh, the romance was immediately terminated but um it was better i wished i had never done it no but you know i always had this fantasy of like living in a hotel and the idea oh you know if if i didn't feel like cooking i could order room service and you know you have the maid service but you'd own this apartment you know that that's still to me i hear you say like the thing about you wanted to kind of live in like that's i imagine that kind of a romantic notion of like there's something about being in a restaurant that just for you on an animal level just feels well I think I just always was in family restaurants and so that felt really special um I was always at you know Chinese restaurants where I could see the family sort of on during the quiet time I was just talking about this recently and I can't remember what it was for but like you know there was this we my my mom and I used to go to this Chinese American place that I loved in Minneapolis and we used to um go like maybe sort of on the late side of lunch or maybe the early side of lunch it was usually a lunch spot for us but during that time the restaurant was pretty quiet and they would be prepping like the string beans and the snow peas and the the soybean sprouts okay where they take the little ends off of them Mm -hmm. they were so meticulously doing that at the table and then sometimes we would go there and they wouldn't be doing that but they would be having their own meal it was the grandma I think it was just because I didn't have my grandma you know like it was like Mm. the grandma and the the small children and then like the sort of the adults that were running the day-to-day and it had been like a a double generation restaurant but it's also so interesting that you as a diner keyed into an element of life at the restaurant that most diners you know like yeah it doesn't register in their it's almost like something that's outside their you know like outside their auditory zone you know like they well i really wanted to know how they made what they made you know like i was really curious about um about that because I really appreciated 
like how good it was. Mm-hmm. So when you decide you want to do this, how how what were the baby steps? How'd you start? I didn't. I don't know that I was that like vocational about it. I just knew that I wanted to do it, and I also had the sense that because I was I I was the child of immigrants, and all the people I saw in the restaurants that we went to were also immigrants. I just kind of felt like you made it up as you went along. Like it's it seemed like oh you come to this country maybe you open a restaurant, but doesn't mean that you would have opened a restaurant in your own country. Do you right. know what I mean? And that I do. certainly is like what happened to tapas here. <laughs> hence, hence why they needed to be recovered and repaired. I think what's really interesting about when people open restaurants in places that there aren't a lot of restaurants like is that like nobody can compare it to another restaurant for like authenticity or so it could be very extreme. Like it could be very, very good uh, because they're not having to like be like an Indian place that serves like the quintessential Indian dishes that we all know like on 6th Street in, in the village or it could be really bad right because it could be like these people that they don't have a relationship to these cuisines that they're making but they've heard that they're popular mm-hmm. you know like it's kind of like you know Thai foods in style like we have to open a Thai restaurant even though we're not really Thai we're you know from somewhere else that also has an extraordinary cuisine but mm-hmm. but maybe they don't think that that cuisine is valued enough to to serve it or you know now it, we're in a totally different time now where many cuisines are valued mm-hmm. um, well but, I think also there's more of a premium now uh, obviously not universally but on authenticity right like there's there's more of a People are more conscious of when they're not having something authentic, and, and I think people are more interested in seeking out more authentic things. I mean, I look, you just mentioned Indian food. I think about the... Um, it's a big place. You know, I think about Chintan, and, mm-hmm. you know, who's doing, who just opened Damaka, who yep. was just on the show recently, and, like, you know, the mission that he and his partner Ronnie are on mm-hmm. to, to just do, you know, really do authentic, unapo- the name of their company, Unapologetic Foods, you know, right. to do unapologetically authentic versions of stuff that people are probably used to having kind of bastardized versions of, mm-hmm. you know? I think, and I think that's resonating. I, I think... Yeah, I mean, I would love to... I, I I know them a little bit. I would love to sit down with them and and talk about stuff too because I also think it's just like when when should you disrupt something that's traditional to make it better if you think that you can. Sometimes I want to cook like my grandma or I want I want people to feel the way that I felt when I was eating my grandma's food, but I don't necessarily want to cook her food. I want to be current and and there were a lot of compromises that we were making because we couldn't get the right olive oil, we couldn't get the right ham. Or, like, if you don't need to make those compromises, like, are you being more authentic or less authentic to the past? You know, like, there's so much nostalgia, and nostalgia is so, can be very, I don't know, you have to, like, ride that line between, like, sort of nostalgia and, like, sentimentality and authenticity I didn't used to be nervous about using the word authentic but I I just want people to have like a visceral experience and like authenticity for who like you know like mm-hmm. who says I guess maybe <laughs> you know? a better word would be informed right I, mean, right. I guess and that's also, what I meant when I like informed food food that comes from a place of at least you're going to the right sort to the right source for it yeah like I think you're, that's you're, what it your, is. your starting point is you want to kind of understand what you're riffing what's on your what source you're doing. yeah 
and and how and what's your criteria yes yeah. right yeah. yeah does that make sense yeah no i i but I, i'm really into this question like i wasn't even saying i don't agree i was saying like i'm a, kind of obsessed with this question you said you didn't necessarily pursue it vocational like what what did you did you think you were going to do something else with your life no, I just would get like really obsessed with like certain things. Like I was really obsessed with coffee culture when I was younger and I thought I would have like I thought I would like go to Italy and create like an espresso concept and open that. You mean um, like, a, like some kind of a, a coffee book, espresso yeah, bar? Yeah, I mean I, you know, I was young. So like yeah. I mean I was young in the 80s. So like I mean there wasn't espresso everywhere. There was no Starbucks. There was no yeah. like and I you know I moved to Seattle and like espresso but i moved there after i lived in italy and so when i lived in italy i in my mind i was like i really just want you know what happened i think when i was young like maybe in sixth or seventh grade we went to seattle and like minneapolis was a place that didn't feel like it had a culture that like resonated with me i was from there i felt comfortable there but like i loved going to like there was no place like South Philly where you just go into a delicatessen that was Italian and they had like chorizo hanging up on the wall and imported pasta and they cared about those things and there was panettone in the winter and Colomba in the spring like I wanted those things because those were the things that I saw that was how the seasons were in Argentina to me um, so so Minneapolis was bereft of that it felt that way. You could. Yeah. My my mom would go to a place in St. Paul that had like a guy who called her sweetie, and like it was called Demonicos, and they would like make sausage and stuff. But there wasn't like a pork store on every corner like there's in New York, yeah. you know. And, yeah. And that that was what I was like. I wanted that, and so when we went to Seattle, there was a place called De Laurentiis. It's still there, as far as I know. Um, and we went with these Italian friends of my parents who. Um, they had sort of emigrated at the same time and they were family friends but they moved to seattle and i went to seattle and i just fell in love with it in seventh grade i was like i just want to live here and i want to live my life in italian and you know like i don't know and so i kind of was gravitating towards that path and then i i did move to italy and then i did move to seattle um but i and i always was in food but i was just that kid who like couldn't stop working at the deli like i just couldn't get a leg up like i was always making sandwiches i still make sandwiches yes you just treated me to a, <laughs> a beautiful one your your skate sandwich um do you know the starbucks story do you know how the coffee bar thing happened for them it's it's because it's I, it's kind of parallel i don't know this may just make you crazy yeah. but do you know the story howard schultz i think he went to italy right he was so the original starbucks was at pike place market i mm -hmm. mean again talk about the seattle food scene i mean the yeah. pike place market goes back to the early 70s right that's where we went also that i was also really enchanted with. i was and obsessed the original starbucks was there and mm -hmm. and the company had grown a little bit and they howard schultz who became like the head of the company eventually was there i forget his title but he was like a buyer you know mm -hmm. and he went looking for you know um you know plunger pots and stuff on a trip to italy and he mm -hmm. went to milan and milan's about the size of philadelphia that's not, where i live not very big yep and there were 1500 cough espresso bars there yep and howard had the idea starbucks needs to you know we can't just be a coffee roaster we have to have espresso bars they didn't want to do it and howard went off and started a little five unit thing called il giornale like after the newspaper mm-hmm in Seattle as a prototype it did so well that he raised enough money to come back and they bought 
they bought Starbucks. They bought it back and that's, out. Yeah, and then that's what they went and did. Yeah, I but didn't he, know he had been. His Italy, I, initial yeah. idea had been rejected, but no, this yeah. is a bit of a di- digression. Mm-hmm. But, but it was the whole the Italy Seattle connection. Mm-hmm. That's that's where it started. He went on a trip to Milan. Yeah. yeah, and I was living in Milan, and I just want. I would see lots of things that I wanted to bring back, but then, I don't know. Then I would just. I think I was always afraid that. It would doing one thing like one singular thing would be boring for me, and so food is just like much more expansive. Like, I, coffee lost its charm pretty fast, which is funny because later in life I opened a coffee shop and I was like, yeah, I'm not interested in coffee culture whatsoever. I love good coffee, but just the culture of coffee and baristas and all of that, like, become um, a little self-conscious. I feel like it all became a little self-conscious. It's also just for young people, I think. Like it's yeah. the only way to make money in in coffee is either to have a lot, which is I find distasteful, like a lot of the same thing, it's not fun. And um and then or to do it all by yourself and like to be pulling the shots. And so for that you have to really like you have to like bow to the coffee. You know, you really have to believe. Mm-hmm. In I mean, I think to do anything well, you have to believe in what you're doing and like I would not have been able to have that depth of interest. You know, it's so funny because you're describing at least, I don't know, like creatively, what sounds like a little bit, is, is it a restlessness? It feels like a, you, it's a little bit of a restlessness yeah, or an intellectual restlessness. But the, the, the question I was going to ask you is that I, it's so funny because I've, you know, I've known you a long time. Now. Yeah. I mean, I met you, I've known you almost 20 years. Yep. That's not a word that, like that aspect of your Psyche has never, you know, you just seem to me to be this like, compl- even sitting here talking, even as I'm asking you this question, you you have a very placid look, your energy seems very settled. I've always experienced <laughs> you, I've always experienced you that way. Are you not like that in, in like on the inside? You mentioned I, interior and exterior before. Is that a... I, I worry a lot. You um, do? Yeah. That's but so I've had a lot of bad things happen to me. I've been through a lot of stuff. So I do worry a lot. And I try to look at everything from all sides. And I think just being a woman also, you're navigating a lot of things and then also a lot of unfair things all the time. And that can like mess with your brain a little bit. I actually need a lot of alone time, uh, even though what I do is uh, a lot of together time. You need a long time, um, what, to pr- just for, like, processing? Yeah, I'm a very slow processor, actually. That's what I am. That's what I've, like, come to know. I've never been diagnosed, but I'm convinced that, like, I have a processing. I've even had my hearing checked, and they've said, there's nothing wrong with your hearing. And I'm like, but I can't hear. And they're like, it's probably a processing disorder, you know. Well, I don't know what they mean by processing, but I actually once had a full neuropsych workup, mm-hmm. and I have terrible they call it processing speed mm-hmm. that's me too I'm very yeah. slow but yeah. I'm very thorough <laughs> I pay a lot of attention well they gave me a test and I got like 33rd percentile and and they said you can't you'll never get anything done you know working like this and I said but were the answers right and they said well yeah you got 100% right <laughs> 100% yeah. 30% yes right yeah, but to me sucks. that was like uh, that was actually valid that was actually weirdly validation but they, really? they were right I think about it all the time but I'm I've never had that done but I'm but yeah, it, you I'm, need time to be alone kids. and kind of let th- and have things kind of work their way through your brain yeah I, th- I definitely have like exe- executive stuff. function stuff for sure. I mean, I didn't have that in my vocabulary until I had children of my own. Um, Executive function. Yeah. 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 
Um, but I'm glad I wasn't diagnosed in some ways. I mean, it's really, it can wreak sort of havoc on your life. Um, you know what happens is, like, I think you, like, you choose a profession that, like, you know, I have to be here at the right time. I have a uniform. I need to show up. Like, all of those things worked really well for me for so long. But then when you become your own boss, you have more flexibility. And when you have more flexibility, you, um, you have less... Um, Regimentation. Right. Yeah. Which is good for, you know, people who have those kinds of disorders. On the other hand, if, you know, if I had been diagnosed and, like, steered towards something else or a different kind of behavior, like, I don't think I would have been creative, you know. Yeah. It's so, a blessing and a curse, right? It is. I mean, it is. I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but, you know, but I... But it works for me. Well, you also, though, get to experience, you know, I, I just had this talk with someone on the show recently that I, I mentioned a conversation with my son, whose, ma whose main ambition, as he sees it, uh, at age 16 is to make money, right? And, oh, really? You know, he said that to me, and I, I said to him, I said, I'm envious. You know, I'm envious that you aren't, and I wasn't being at all cheeky about mm -hmm. it. I, I'm, I said, I'm envious that you aren't burdened with this need to do something creative or express right like mm -hmm. I had that and it's made uh, you know it's made my life more challenging as your need for it has made your life more challenging than other paths might have right mm -hmm. but but I also feel like you do get the high you do get that satisfaction like for you I would expect it's opening a new restaurant that you feel like really expresses something you know mm -hmm. and it's a success in is a successful execution it was in your head you get the pleasure of you just had it with me i just yeah. had you you were nice enough when i arrived it was cold and rainy outside and you gave me a lovely soup and and a and the skate sandwich but you know you get to watch you said i have i guess this is great i get to watch you eat my food right yeah. like like um, oh and also because i don't go home as late as i used to so i don't get to see that all the time Right, but so you um, get, to, but you get the pay. That payoff is like, isn't that some reward for all the kind of, kind of, uh, you know, struggle that the rest of it necessitates? Yeah, I don't. I, I wouldn't call it a payoff. I like money too. I mean, I don't like. I don't. I've never been motivated um, by money, but I'm because I'm entrepreneurial, and that's how a lot of times you measure like success. It's fun to to be able to forecast, predict exactly how something is going to go and have it go that way, you know. Um, like, there, it's not been surprising to me that the concepts that that we've done have been successful, like, you know, by certain standards. I mean, I anticipated, like, the excitement that people would have around, like, certain restaurants. I also, like, really deeply believed in restaurants that, you know, maybe critically didn't get the attention because they were like ahead of their curve or misunderstood or just like people weren't interested in cuisine that wasn't Mediterranean until yesterday. Until yesterday? Yes. What happened yesterday? Just people are suddenly interested in okay. in, in things that, that we've been doing for 13 years. Um, that, that place persisted because it was high quality and, and real, you know, and... Um, and deeply considered and and so pete there was an audience for it it just wasn't the media it was just our regular customers who really are the ones who keep coming back to the restaurant not like the people who come once and then leave you know never come back yeah i wonder if you could help me understand something so much of what you are describing 
is so personal, right? Mm-hmm. The, your relationship to food, your relationship to, to learning about and reading about food, um, um, you know, where these ideas for different restaurants come from. Um, you know, one of the, one of the kind of exquisite um, cruelties to me about the restaurant business, about being a professional cook mm-hmm. and chef, is that you're so subject to the um, the validation of others, right? Mm-hmm. Your customers. I mean, the most you know, the critics. You know, yeah. like like so much of most people's sense of wor- worth it comes from how other people respond to something, right? Yeah. And I I wonder if you ever. It's almost a question that's so abstract. I don't even know how to phrase it. But I almost wonder if you ever wish, like, like I almost wonder if there's some like restaurant in your head that if you could just open a restaurant for you, you know, it would be X, you know, or if you could have a restaurant that existed outside the need for commerce. Do you ever think in those terms? I could well, imagine you having, like, I could the way everything about the way you're talking. I could imagine you having an idea for something that you'd love to just have dissociated from all this other stuff just as almost like a thought experiment well or like yes. an installation you know? yeah does that make sense yeah it does um i think i'm perhaps a different type of person because i really like the the transactional part of it like i don't like the transactional part of it with employees like of course i would love for everyone to make more money um, while they were learning to do cool things I like, you know, the way I like to play a restaurant, like, it's almost like I'm still playing. If I open something that was not sort of based on, like, some kind of transactional thing, would I love to be, like, have a restaurant by the ocean where, like, it was just, like, whatever was there and there was, like, you know, some kind of garden and all that? Yes, I would love that. And you're just, like, improvising? Yeah, and I also would love to run... I would love to see what our food would look like in another landscape. You know, like I would love to open something in Spain. I would love to open something in Mexico. <laughs> Places that I love to visit that I find really, really inspiring. Um, but to flip the switch on like our own thing. You know what I mean? That's like, that strikes me as John Travolta said in Pulp Fiction, that strikes me as a bold say? statement. <laughs> like to take your act to, you know to take what you do and go to Spain I mean it would be so different there oh sure because the context would be so different and but that wouldn't be daunting wouldn't be, you don't think it would be daunting to you no I think it would be that. super inspiring the part that I find daunting is just that I'm old and I rely on the help of so many other bodies to execute um, like the the ideas um, and so I wish I could take them all with me and I know that they would enjoy it as well because you know we have a lot are of people who stay with us because the work is stays interesting and it would be so fun to just be like we're taking this show on the road but like that only happens for like you know Renee Rizepi <laughs> um, but I, I think that there's room for other people I mean of course what they do is amazing when you can do that you know because like I said travel is transformative and I, I think to be able to travel with your team and like have that running through everyone's veins and heads at the same time like that's just like such a gift like i would love to do that like but i also have school-age kids and right there's that yes i do know um and 
and I, I'm not sorry about that. That's like the best thing too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it'd be great to be able to like pick up my family and go live somewhere else for a year. I think that would be the most incredible thing for my children. But that's like not compatible with running restaurants. Last question, because I know we need mm-hmm. to wrap up today. You know, we've been through this horrible year, right? Mm-hmm. Has the imaginative, forward-looking part of your brain stayed, uh, you know, vibrant during that time? Like, do you, do you, do you have you had new ideas over the over this last time? You know, most tons. people. Tons. I wish I most could people sell just talked. Most people <laughs> just talked about survival. You say tons. Tons. So I've it, always had more ideas. You've still than I you've had, had the bandwidth to still places. have things kind of percolate. Yeah, I, I always have more ideas than I can ever execute. That's why you know I really loved opening St. Julie Barrett because it was it's a restaurant that's really about travel, um, and so I could just do whatever I wanted there whenever I wanted as long as it related to the water and the ocean um, you know I did that because I, I you know I like to sort of box myself in a little bit because otherwise I'll be all over the place but I, I like it you know closed but open um, and so I'm excited to open that place up again because there's a lot of like latitude you know like there's a lot of room in that 300 square foot try taco truck <laughs> <laughs> um well listen uh thanks for doing you know it's funny i've known you for so long i don't know that we've ever set just uh, certainly not that one-on-one had a Thomas. conversation like this but thanks for coming on the show uh, thank you for coming here And that's our show for today. My thanks again to Alex Raj and Jody Liano for joining us. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you are able to support us, please contribute via our Patreon page at patreon.com andrew. Or support us by telling a friend about the pod, posting about it on social media, and especially by rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which really does help new listeners find the show. As always, my great thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you here soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.